Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lunch Agenda on Full Service Radio. We are broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in D.C., and I am your host, Julie Kurtz. I hope all of our listeners had a beautiful Thanksgiving holiday and are keeping cozy as we dive into the holiday season. So here on Lunch Agenda, we've arrived at episode eight of Eating the Green New Deal. In anticipation of our final episodes of the series, uh, I'm inviting listeners to send any questions or comments to me at Soil Soul Food on Twitter as we look to bring uh, some of the instigators behind the Green New Deal onto the show and um, talk about some of these themes that we've covered in the past couple months. So over this time, we've looked at the Green New Deal from various angles, trying to flesh out what a Green New Deal for the food system might look like. We've seen it through the eyes of farmers, scientists, labor organizers, legal and policy experts, and today we add another voice to our exploration of food businesses. As we explore the role of the private sector in creating a food system that exploits neither people nor planet. So listeners, prepping for a podcast is dangerous work. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Steeped in research about Ben and Jerry's ice cream this week, even after I was stuffed with pumpkin pie, I broke down. You cannot spend hours reading about Ben and Jerry's ice cream without craving a pint. So I think today's conversation, however, will be even more rewarding than the pint of half-baked, now in my freezer, what's left of it, as we talk with Cheryl Pinto. Cheryl is the global values-led sourcing manager for Ben and Jerry's, the beloved ice cream based in Vermont. Cheryl has extensive experience in product commercialization within international foods manufacturing, and we are so thrilled to welcome her to Lunch Agenda today. Cheryl, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me to join you. Absolutely. Cheryl, Ben & Jerry's approaches ingredient procurement through a values-led sourcing, which embeds Ben & Jerry's commitment to, quote, linked prosperity throughout the value chain. So could you tell us a little bit more about what that means and how the Ben & Jerry's commitment of linked prosperity throughout the value chain came into being? Sure. It's actually a a really... DNA-type concept for Ben & Jerry's. This is literally what Ben & Jerry came up with over 35, 40 years ago. The company's just a little over 40 years ago. And when Ben & Jerry started, they were doing business in a typically conventional way and not feeling very satisfied with how their business was run. Mm. Um, You know, typical small business challenges, you know, just the typical sorts of things that everyone normally would deal with. looking at making a profit, wanting to still do some good in the world. And when they really reflected upon their values, realized we need to question how business is done, we need to uh, question business as usual, and really pursue a way of driving the prosperity that they were enjoying at one end of the value chain, Mm. driving it all the way down to those people who are all key players along the chain. So I like to say that everybody who touches our ingredients enjoys their fair share of the pie. Mm. And so we aspire to really 
push towards sharing that because that's also where you really get true resilience in a value chain. You, you bring out all those wonderful qualities because you've got this sense of everybody thriving together. Yeah. And so uh, in my tenure, in my role, which has now been a few years, I, I sort of also look about this as, you know, wanting justice to be the first ingredient that we mm-hmm. have on our pints, so whether it's climate justice or social justice, economic justice, really wanting to make sure that we're really considering all of those elements when we look to source our ingredients, whether it is dairy, which is our largest ingredient, or some of the other ingredients like cocoa, sugar, vanilla, etc., brownies, cookie dough, all those sorts of things. Yeah. So let's go ahead and start with dairy. I know that Ben and Jerry's has a, a, a huge um, uh, global space that you're sourcing from, but, but let's start in the Northeast with dairy. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the value sourcing program that you that you that you is under the title Caring Dairy. Is that right? Yep. Caring Dairy Standards, yep. which relates to cow care. I love that cow care, planet stewardship, and farmers and farm workers. Um, yeah. So last week, we talked with uh, Shauna Sadowski of General Mills, and we spent some time talking about their regenerative ag self-assessment tool. And Ben & Jerry's actually has a comparable tool, although yours is quite more elaborate, in fact. It's some 40 pages and covers everything from soil health, social indicators like farmer, farm worker, and community indicators, farm financials, animal husbandry, pest management, energy, water. It's pretty extensive and impressive. And so I imagine it's not a light lift for farmers, but I I was wondering, so any farm that wants to join the Caring Dairy Program has to complete this self-assessment tool annually. Is that right? Yes. And then you have a couple improvement plans that they they work out themselves? Well, so it's been the Caring Dairy Program has been... um, in play here in Vermont and also globally. We also have this program in Europe with our Dutch and German farmers. Gotcha. It's, it's been an evolving program. So when it first started, it was a self-assessment that farmers did, and they did those continuous improvement programs. We then stepped it up um, in 2016 to a third-party verified program with okay. specific requirements that farmers would need to meet in terms of regenerative ag, especially in terms of animal welfare, those sorts of areas. So, again, mm-hmm. those indicators were still present, but we had clear requirements on how much cover cropping they did, for example, or, uh, you know, different elements around the, the herd itself. So, in that sense, we then had to, we were able to tier the system. So, now you have farmers that really go to, to the utmost gold standard, literally. So, there are gold farmers. And then we have slightly less requirements for silver, and then we have basic farmers. So, farmers self-select into that group. Okay. And basically... We have enough farmers to cover the volume of milk that's needed to produce the cream that we need for our North American production. It's not a segregated supply. It's mass balanced because we work with a cooperative here in Vermont. And so there are many farms in that system. And a lot of infrastructure, physical infrastructure, would be needed to segregate all of this dairy. Yeah, and just so our listeners understand. So basically all of the dairy, and it's it's St. Albans uh, Collected yeah. Cooperative is, you work for? Yeah. Yeah, so with? they just recently got acquired by DFA, Dairy Farmers of America. Okay. So they okay. merged this summer. Okay. But there are some 350 or so farms that, that are part of the St. Albans Cooperative. Is that right? Correct. And we don't need the dairy from all of those farms. It's roughly equivalent to 80 farms that we need dairy from. Okay. So you just, you cover the Daring Carry, the mm, got to say that It fast. is a Daring Caring <laughs> Dairy Program. <laughs> daring Caring Dairy Program. Um, 
it just covers those 70, 80 farms that you work with. Yes. Okay. Okay. And that represents the volume that we would need in our demand. Wow. For North America. Wow. It is impressive to me that uh, when I learned it was so few farms that, that that's enough for all the ice cream in the domestic market. Is that correct? It is. So, again, it's a really interesting comment you're making because it's also showing the trend that's happening to farm consolidation, yeah. right? So you're seeing here in Vermont, we've had a tremendous number of farms go out of business, yeah. you know, 12% a year. So maybe 10 years ago, there was like 11,000 farms. Now we're down to like 800 farms type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um so you're seeing this consolidation where farm size is growing. So the number of cows is actually not really going down. Sure. The yield from a cow is going up, right. but you're seeing the number of farmers going down. And that's something that's really concerning us because from a Ben & Jerry's perspective, we really support a thriving, resilient rural community. And you mm-hmm. see this across all commodities, not just dairy. There's a concern just in general, right, yep. that you're seeing this shift where towards more urbanization, the next generation doesn't want to go into farming, yeah. and there's a lot of hurdles. So here in Vermont, from a dairy perspective, yes, it's just about 80 farms, but it's a tremendous amount of cream that comes out of those farms. Sure. Sure. We talked about some of that in um, episodes five and six. We talked with millennial farmers, and we focused a lot on land issues in episode six. So some of these issues of all the consolidation that has happened mm-hmm. in the past years, so listeners can tune into those. Um, I, I heard you talking about regenerative ag and cover cropping. Those we in our sexy soils uh, episode in episode four, we we talked about that, and then of course last week with General Mills as well. So if if listeners want more information on what you mean by that, we encourage you to tune in there. Um, so the one of the things in the the self assessment. Um, well, I'm wondering, actually, so the, there's a social indicator section and then a, a, a section that, that, that deals with farm workers. And I'm wondering, we're going to talk in a second about the Milk with Dignity program, but has that, the, the social element, always been a part of the self-assessment tool that you, that you use? Yeah, yeah. No, they, there was always this understanding about the farming community mm-hmm. and recognizing the lifestyle of being a farmer, there's a lot of nuance to it, standing in the community, opportunities to sit down with your family and have dinner, all those sorts of components. Yeah, so like even questions I think like there, that. So yeah, there's been a tremendous amount of um, thought and effort put into having those questions in the self-assessment so that the farmers themselves could stop and think. And that's where we've actually gotten a lot of feedback from the farmers in our community was, you know, some appreciation of saying, hey, you know, I never thought about how often I sit down and have dinner or, or what, you know, the school board, my participation in the school board means for my community in mm-hmm. terms of just as a farmer participating in these sorts of roles. So I think there was, it was not so much that we measure it and say, well, if you sit down with your family once versus seven times, you know, that's going to impact your your score. It was really an opportunity to give farmers a chance to pause and think about the quality of their life and the quality mm-hmm. of their time. And we always did have this around farmers. I think we had actually started to look at this around farm workers, and it was a nice convergence then to work with Milk with Dignity then to and Migrant Justice, but then to bring the Milk with Dignity component in for farm workers because we had recognized there are other people on the farm. So we'd focused a lot on farmers and on cows and on land and those pieces, and it had almost um, – morphed, the farmer and the farmer had morphed together and we recognize there's different needs yeah. and that we needed to really pay um, 
the right amount of attention to the farm workers as well. And then Milk with Dignity stepped in for that space. Yeah, yeah. That, that just some of these questions around the social, it, it um, I, I lived in the Andes for a, a few years and that there's this concept of buen vivir, which is like well-being. And, and so I think about those kinds of questions that, that may not always have a financial dollar uh, that you can attach to them, but they, they represent quality of life. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's that. And then the other piece of this is uh, the idea of farm succession. So because you've sure. talked to millennials and understand all of that, that was a key piece because sometimes you're so busy with your nose to the grindstone or literally in the milking parlor, it is thinking about, well, how, how do I continue the con- continuity of what we're doing here yeah. for the next generation? Absolutely. Do I sit down and talk to my daughter who's not so sure she wants to take over the farm? Yeah. So we've had, lo- again, really good feedback from farmers that have helped to say that this filling out this self-assessment and answering these questions has provided them with the, the reason to engage in some mm. of these conversations with yeah. families. We spoke with Jillian Hyshaw a few weeks ago, who's actually an attorney, and that's a lot of what she does is thinking about farm succession and working yeah. with, with small farmers. So I want to jump into Milk with Dignity. Uh, ben & Jerry's is a particularly unique in that it's the only dairy purchaser in the country, as far as I know, that buys its dairy from farms that participate in this kind of program. So Milk with Dignity really sets Ben & Jerry's apart. Um, so I, I was wondering, could you just... To start off, could you tell our listeners that might not be familiar with with Milk with Dignity and Migrant Justice, could you tell us a little bit more about the program and how Ben and Jerry's came to participate in it? Sure. Uh, so Migrant Justice was a farm worker-led activist group that formed because of a very sad tragedy, a death of a young farm worker here in Vermont. And when that community sort of rallied together, there was a recognition that they needed to be vocal about their rights. They needed to raise awareness of what was needed to keep them safe on farms and to actually just acknowledge that there were there were gaps that needed to be addressed. And it's um, it's been an interesting space to work in because this is something that I think in some ways has really arisen over the last 20 years. There's a lot of studies now looking at, you know, the change in labor patterns, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so this arose over the last, let's say last 15 years, last 15 to 10 years. And I think knowing our values and Ben and Jerry's pride in working with our farmers and our farm network and our desire to really, again, recognize the human rights within our supply chains, bring the dignity to that, recognize that we want to lean in and are willing to um, really support those who are marginalized and often don't have a chance to be at the table. Mm-hmm. I think Migrant Justice recognized, Ben and Jays, you really need to work with us on this. And uh-huh. when we got together, there were some challenges. And if, if you look at the history of this, there was an activist campaign led by Migrant Justice raising awareness around our practices and the negotiation. We call it a negotiation, but it was really a, a very intense process of almost, I think, two years from the time we really um, engaged with Migrant Justice to wow. get to uh, an agreement that could work, that we could roll out within our supply chain. And so during that time, there was this activism. But I want to stress that, again, what was happening publicly and what was happening 
behind closed doors, in a sense, between the factions from Migrant Justice and Ben and Jerry's who were working through all the details. Yeah. It was a parallel path. We very much knew that you had to have this public display to keep the heat on us and to raise awareness just in general for what was happening to migrant workers across the country, regardless of where, where they were working, sure. as well as um, ensure that we were going to deliver. So we were able to uh, come to an agreement because the key principles were not in my view, they were not far from where we already were leaning towards anyway with our farmers. And I think that gave us a lot of confidence when we agreed to the contract was knowing that our farmers could meet the standards. It was it was going to be doable. It wasn't something that was so difficult and such a huge hurdle that we would lose all the farms in our program. Uh, Milk with Dignity is the program itself, and it's a code of conduct that the farm workers have put together that holds the farmers responsible for all sorts of conditions from scheduling and housing conditions, you know, safety, all those sorts of components are part of the program. And so it sort of functions like a third-party verification. It does act as a third-party verification. There's farm worker education. So Milk with Dignity actually brings in a farm worker who's part of migrant justice to come and speak and, and really ensure that they're providing the education around the rights to the farm workers. So again, it can be in Spanish. It's, it's people who understand and have experienced what the farm workers are going through. They're the ones that are doing this training. There's an additional um, cash stipend that's paid. So we pay a premium to the farmers to be in this program for meeting this, the standard. And so there's a pass-through that goes to the farm workers if they're not earning a living wage. Mm-hmm. So that's a key piece. It's not about a minimum wage. It's about living the earning the living wage, which is like in Vermont, like a standard that's set um, by the state. Okay. So there's that component, and then there's uh, a support line so that farm workers can call and speak to someone in English or Spanish expressing any concerns. And it can be questions, clarifi- clarification questions. It can, it can be grievances. But that's an additional support line that gives farm workers access to call somebody. And it's, it's been a really interesting process because this was everything that we worked through to figure out, okay, this is, these are the key pillars of the program. Yeah. You've got the audit. So now the farmer, who is used to working with Ben and Jerry's and the people that we work with, is now bringing in a third group, which is Milk with Dignity, now to come in. And it's it was an interesting, and I, I'll say it was a challenging time at first, mainly not so much because of the code, but just a different way of working mm-hmm. and having to build trust and opening up your doors because it's, it's different from just having an auditor walk through a milking parlor. Now you've got um, these verifiers walking through the housing conditions and looking yeah. at everything and having one-on-one time alone without you present asking the farm worker, how is the farmer treating you? Sure. How do you feel about X, Y, and Z? Right? Do you get a rest? Do you get this? So it's a testimony, I think, just to the whole community, both the farm workers and the farmers, and of course, migrant justice and milk with dignity, that we're now in our second year of this program. So, you know, you yeah. always hold your breath as you roll out the first year of big change. Sure, and then sure. Packages, anyone, you know, they're going to drop out. And everybody re-upped, basically. Okay. And there have been some challenges. There's definitely teeth in the system. This is not something soft and kumbaya. Yeah, there have been yeah. some challenges with probations. There have been challenges with some suspensions. Mm-hmm. But we've been able to to, again, without us, again, the key, um, I like to say we don't stand between the farmer and Milk with Dignity. We stand behind Milk with Dignity. We stand behind the program. And what we really are there is just to sort of continue to support this idea that when we purchase the dairy and when we work with these farmers that they are in compliance with this code or striving to to meet the code. And it's our belief that, you know, we really believe that the human rights and that dignified livelihood 
should be there for everybody, farm worker, farmer, and also even cow welfare, all those other components. But yeah. it's it's been a really it's been a really good journey and a lot of learning. And my my own personal learning has been huge from being in a corporate, you know, your corporate hat on across the table discussing these things uh-huh. and then really rolling up the sleeves and understanding the challenges for both the farmer and farm worker as they've embraced this program. Mm-hmm. So this has been, I mean, I wondered about that. I, I mean, even just myself, there was a real learning curve for me to understand just the, the realities of, of farm worker conditions and, and, and just the dairy industry in general. And so I imagine personally that the whole process affects someone significantly. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering too, um, the, well, you're talking about the, the, the call line that farm workers can use. And it, it seems like what I've heard is that one of the big parts of the benefits that this has opened up is this is communication. So mm-hmm. that suddenly farm workers really have a, a way to communicate on more equal footing. And so whether that's contacting the call line to express concerns or even just more freedom to voice something when something is unsafe on the farm without any fear of of retribution or confusion that there's that it is just opened up um, more fluid dialogue between farm worker and farmer. And that is a huge safety benefit um, on farms. So I don't, that's something that, that I've heard, but I'm curious from your standpoint, are there other major improvement areas on farms uh, from the labor standpoint that you've, you've heard about and you've been observing? Well, yeah. So one of our key pieces which was not an initial requirement of Milk with Dignity, but from a Ben and Joe's perspective, we decided that we needed to support this, was that everybody needed to receive a cash minimum wage. Mm. So there is no set minimum wage for ag workers here in Vermont. And so this was us actually stepping in and saying to our farmers, we know that you provide housing, transportation, all those additional benefits. We still need you to provide the cash minimum wage that's set by the state that everybody else is eligible for. So we now need this to apply to our farm workers. And so, again, this was not an easy undertaking for farmers. They had to really look at how they were going to schedule these wage increases. They had to consider the seniority of the farm workers that they've had. And, Mm -hmm. again, trying not to upset that balance of appreciating those who have worked hard and been there a long time versus those who are just coming in and suddenly having this big jump. but happy to say that we've seen this improvement take place. We've seen uh, some improvements in housing, but housing is one of the most challenging areas. Yeah. Uh, and so we recognize that. There have been nice uh, solutions that have been put forward around scheduling. And I will say the communication has improved, but I think it's still it's, – it's always, again, about human nature. And so we're still working through some of those communication challenges because – because sometimes the farmers now feel that they're not necessarily always hearing it first. And so it is this different mm. way of communicating because you're right. Now there's someone on more equal footing, no fear of retaliation. So now we're also now working with the farmers to say, yeah, there is a shift. You're going to hear this from somebody else who's bringing it to you. It may not be your farm worker. And we're still working through some of that because I think it's that sense of I used to be the one that they came to and now they're not coming always to the farmer first, mm. right? Sure. So there's still there's still adjustments, but I think that is part of when you do shift how you relate, when you do shift, a, a, it is a bit of a shift of a power dynamic, yeah. right, which we recognized was happening. Yeah. And um, and even from a Ben and Jerry's perspective, we gave up some of our power because we, we gave it to, over to Milk with Dignity in a sense to say, okay, we don't need sure. to be in there doing all of this auditing. We will trust you now to do this and give us just the report. Um, 
so it's it's I think for me I've heard some really good tales and I think one of the hardest challenges and it's not to knock it I think it's just a, a, a it's something we just learned in general is you often hear about how well um you know the farmers farm workers can be treated like family things like that and I think what this has provided is I'm sure again that our farmers were treating our farm workers well this just sort of codifies it in a way that's really clear to help really be clear on expectations for both sides. And we're continuing to work in that space where we're very clear on what the rights are for the farm workers now, the farmers know what is expected of them, and then similarly making sure that the farm workers also understand to extend that same respect back to the farmers if they are going to, for example, leave their jobs or do anything, to be able to improve that communication both ways so that it really does help improve transparency, safety, and ultimately then even then the efficiency and the productivity on the farms because both sure. parties are really clear on what's expected of each of them. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, each each person, each farmer is 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 different and you can't uh, you can't uh, be regulating human nature and the way that there are the these interpersonal um, exchanges, no, but you can exactly. certainly set some protections in place. From the business side, not many businesses can say our business model was strongly influenced by workers. That's truly distinct. So how is the participation and, and this strong input? You, you mentioned giving up some of that control. How has the strong input of farm workers changed the Ben & Jerry's business overall? I think it's, it's an extension of that. I think once you start to see it, which we are seeing in dairy, right? You see the farm worker before they're invisible. Like that's the the concept, right? Because it would always be about happy farmers and and not mm. recognizing that they hey, there's farm workers. I think it's made us also again very cognizant of farm workers throughout the different supply chains that I also look and oversee. So mm. you know whether it's domestic ingredients like yeah. you know cherries or almonds, you know those sorts of things, or even abroad when I look at um, cocoa and vanilla. Even when you work with fair trade, that's been one of the challenges for fair trade is the focus so much on the farmer. But what about those that are working the farm? Yeah. And so it has, it's, it, yeah, it's a perpetual cycle, but you open it, you see more, you try to bring in that understanding of recognizing, I don't want to say the lowest common denominator because it doesn't mean that, but you just have to keep diving deeper because it feels like there's, there's always somebody that is invisible, so you have to sort of just think about it and say, who are, who are we not seeing? Who else is in here? Who's contributing? And that's why it's so important to really bring in so much more transparency to your value chain. Yeah. And we as consumers know this now. We're getting much more cognizant of where does our food come from? Where do our clothes come from, just in general? Where does everything yeah. come from? Um, yeah. So from a, with my, my Ben & Jerry's values and sourcing hat on, when I look across my supply chains, whether it's the commodity ingredients, whether it's you know, the brownies that are being baked, the cookies, you know, we're asking these questions all along the way. And it's it's very complex, but just starting to build that muscle and to start asking those questions is a shift that we've taken. And I'd like to say, again, this is always on the trajectory for, for Ben & Jerry's. I think just the way our world is now, you it's harder to know the truth behind where your food is coming yeah. from. And we are really striving to, with technology and with, the people that we collaborate with bring back more transparency because there are a lot of curtains and opacity when you start digging in. Yeah. And, and I just, for some context, we've been kind of talking around this, but um, 
talking about those who who breaking through the the invisibleness that it's roughly 80% of the milk in the domestic US market that is milked at the at, by the hand of of immigrant farm workers so um the, we would not have a dairy industry without um these hard working people that are part of our our supply chain and it is one of the most dangerous jobs and challenging jobs um you know from from even just getting up at 2 a.m in winter in vermont to, to to milk cows but also just you know you're in barn conditions it's cold the machinery there are chemicals around mm. you can get kicked it is incredibly dangerous job and as you mentioned that that migrant justice got started because of a death of a farm worker you know that that, that is not i'm it's not uncommon, you know, it's it is it's far un- more no. common than it is. So just understanding yeah. um, the, the, the burden that, that, that people bear to bring milk into, into our homes and into, into our businesses. So, and I think it's, and the whole reason, again, to your point, when you say 80% of the milk is coming through those hands, migrant hands, is because we don't have the domestic labor to do it, right? So that is our challenge in Vermont as well. And when I talk to farmers, it's just I have a hard time finding other people to do this job. I I need these farm workers to do this, and I want to treat them well. And so it's it's overcoming those pieces, but you're absolutely right. They're a critical, critical, vital component of the sector that I'm working in. Yeah. Well, we need to take a quick break. And then when we come back, I want to dig more into uh, your leadership role in the Sustainable Food Lab and how that connects to Ben and Jerry. So we will be right back. Welcome back to Lunch Agenda, listeners. I am your host, Julie Kurtz. We are broadcasting from Washington, D.C., talking today with Cheryl Pinto, the values-led sourcing manager at Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream. So I want to transition now to talk about, um, Cheryl, your role on the Sustainable Food Lab. So Ben & Jerry's is just one company, but you have really reached out to the broader business community. And so we are actually lucky last week, uh, Shauna Sadowski of General Mills told us a little bit about the Sustainable Food Lab and and also some of the other partnerships that she's part of. So so listeners can tune in to last week to learn a little bit more about that kind of theory of change. Uh, But could you tell us a little bit about how the Sustainable Food Lab relates to your work at Ben & Jerry's and how Sustainable Food Lab has influenced Ben & Jerry's and, and as well how, how you and Ben & Jerry's have influenced the Sustainable Food Lab. Oh, that's a nice question. Yeah, I, I love being part of the Sustainable Food Lab. Uh, so Ben & Jerry's parent company, Unilever, had been uh, pivotal in helping to found the Food Lab. And mm. so there's always been this close relationship. And it's a, a great network of companies, NGOs, academics, all coming together in this space to discuss the challenges that we have in food systems. And I've been really fortunate, being based here in Vermont, the food lab themselves are also based in Vermont, so they're just (laughs) a few hours away from me. So we've been able to take wonderful uh, advantage of having proximity to some very smart people. And so I've actually been able to use the food lab as consultants with me on the work that I do, particularly with the fair trade ingredients that I work with. So across 
cocoa, sugar, coffee, vanilla, mm. almonds. Uh, those are some of the key crops that I'm working through. Mm-hmm. And with the Food Lab and with Fair Trade International, we've pulled together what I call um, the Producer Development Initiative, the PDI. So it was an, an arrangement that we'd made with Fair Trade International when we converted our ice cream to Fair Trade mm. back in 2012. And this is a fund, an internal fund that's been set up that is used to invest in supply chains of fair trade farmers to help them, again, pursue and, and move closer to having dignified livelihoods. So the Food Lab and the folks on that team are key consultants that help me to strategize, design the programs, look at how we're having impact, and really, again, using the Food Lab and the network that I have through that whole group of companies, et cetera, mm-hmm. to bring best practice and hopefully some disruptive thinking to how we are trying to to change and shift and move producers to more dignified livelihoods. Hmm. Could you talk a little bit about the challenges? I mean, it's... Um you're in Vermont, and even then, there's this issue of, of invisibility um, of, of farm workers. But I'm thinking about if you have to cross the ocean and you're thinking mm. about, say, cocoa farmers in Cote d'Ivoire, and um, you're dealing with government issues of perhaps sometimes there's a cocoa floor where they set the price, and that may not be, as, as you described before, a livable wage. Um, or you're dealing with third-party verification that there have been, obviously, there have been issues of corruption in past with different um, third-party verifiers. How do you navigate some of those challenges as a business? Yes, it is incredibly super complex in a nutshell. Uh, we are lucky enough, again, and I'm, I'm fortunate because I feel like I am working with very smart people. So through these organizations, especially with Fair Trade again, boots on the ground, Having the eyes, ears, feet on the ground in these countries is useful. Working through our value chain, so working through our suppliers, because often, again, especially with cocoa, for example, when you work with larger cocoa companies, there's a lot of resource that you can work with to really engage with the cooperatives. We make sure we have a relationship ourselves with those cooperatives. So I've been to Cote d'Ivoire a few times now. I've met with the farmers and the leadership of the cooperatives that we Mm -hmm. work with. Again, partly because we really believe in relationship and Mm -hmm. it takes time to be able to drive positive systemic change. So it's not something that you can say, oh, I'll come in and buy from me for a year and I hope I see all these results. It, it, there's a huge learning curve to some of this work to build that trust and often it's, it's often that these farmers themselves or these co-ops have many buyers and often, again, many large international buyers. So they, they know the routine, and sometimes they, they just feel, oh, we'll just do this for a year, and then someone else will come in. And so they never actually gain any traction in the projects that they're doing. Mm-hmm. So we make longer-term commitments to these cooperatives. And then, again, through the Food Lab, through Fair Trade, through some of the other consultants that we've worked with, we continue to engage and have the farmer voice in the work that we're doing. And, again, try to really do it collaboratively because I think by building trust and then, again, collecting a lot of data, which takes time too, mm. pushing for that transparency, hoping that we will be able to hopefully find those levers that can shift. Yeah. And so it sets them that cooperative on a much more stable pathway to success because often there are very many smart people at these co-ops themselves, and it's just – 
hoping to give them more opportunity because it is also about self-agency. So we don't want to go and dictate everything. That's why it's a collaborative effort. It's yeah. doing really um, in-depth needs assessments, some training and education. And then the mm-hmm. farmers themselves, the leadership of those farmers, then choose what path they want to take for their cooperative. Hmm. It's, it's challenging. And working yeah. on cocoa and vanilla, especially, we just had the big bubble in vanilla. It, there's a lot of market force that happens because these are now super global markets and you're at the mercy of so many different pieces. But so far, we've been able to try to to carve out a piece for Ben & Jerry's to work in. And, and I think the other fortunate thing is that we are willing to take some risk. We're not a huge buyer. So we don't, we often say we punch higher than our weight because I'm not a big sugar buyer or a really big cocoa buyer. But I do have the support of a really progressive board of directors here at Ben & Jerry's, and that allows, between the board and the leadership, allows us to take risks to try some things that might be disruptive that we hope then, if we prove it out, can be scalable. So huh. it's, how we, it's, it's really how we approach the, pro, the problems, not necessarily always our creative solutions, but it's how we do it rather yeah. than just what. And could you tell us a little bit more about what you do, uh, what your leadership role, because you're on the board, you're on the, is it the leadership team, sort of a visionary team at Sustainable Food Lab? What is the role that you play in, in, for Sustainable Food Lab? Yeah, so I'm on the board of directors for Sustainable Food Lab, and then they also have an advisory circle. That's what it is. Um, so there's two tiers, and I, I was really... Um, uh, quite happy to be asked to serve on the board. I think it's really just because I'm down the street in Vermont and it was just convenient <laughs> for them. But it's it's a way of saying how do we continue to work with Sustainable Food Lab to be relevant for the needs of business and food systems today. And in that sense, we're watching this organization evolve. One of the really um, unique uh I guess uh, approaches they take are these ideas of learning journeys, but the learning journey allows enough time for reflection and cross-pollination with the groups. Yeah, Shauna told us a little bit about those yeah. last week. They sound amazing. Together, Yeah, that's when I first met Shauna a few years ago. We did a learning journey together on sugar. And it was, it was an incredible experience because you can either, we can go externally um, to, to origin, basically. But yeah. going with this diverse group of, people from different companies or different sectors, meeting with different players through the value chain, and then having the stewardship and leadership of the food lab staff who have really um, immersed themselves in the space. So they know how to sort of guide us. It's a really, really unique experience. And wow. and those are the sorts of pieces as the board, as members of the board, we think about with when I look again and think about my counterparts in other companies, whether it's other dairy companies, ice cream, just across the commodity boards, I, we belong to a variety of different groups. And sometimes, you know, the buyers, we all kind of get together and we talk and we can, we kind of feel like we're the same tribe because we know we have the same challenges of price versus value versus quality mm-hmm. versus sustainability and how do you juggle and balance all this and have your suppliers work with you. The Food Lab helps, again, to bring that sort of tribe together where we can um, – reflect and resonate with some of the challenges. There's often similar values that are embraced, which is, again, it's called the Sustainable Food Lab. So generally everybody is looking in that direction, wanting to improve. And it then allows us then to really look at different ways of leading and then bringing that value back to scale 
in a commercial setting yeah. so that it actually has real impact versus just being strictly academic off off to the side in a, in a perfect little space. Mm. And I'm curious, just either through through your influence at Sustainable Food Lab or just the proximity of migrant justice, has the Milk with Dignity program influenced uh, Sustainable Food Lab in any way? So the, I think the members of the Food Lab have been exposed to it. I think not so much through the Food Lab yet. We've talked a lot about it. So the Food Lab is actually getting more involved looking at dairy because dairy is just has so many challenges right now, especially um, between the, the pressure we've seen, downward pressure on the market price, et cetera. So they're looking at those broader challenges and questions. And I believe, again, looking at it, you can't, you can't just look at it from one aspect. It really is a holistic challenge that needs a holistic solution. And when you look at it, you have to consider labor because that's a key, that's a key um, line item on the P&L for a farm, sure. right, is, is yeah. labor, feed and labor, right? Mm-hmm. That's where a lot of the, the money gets tied up. So when you start looking at what's challenging these farms to stay viable and you're looking at the P&L, you start addressing these pieces, you look at what's driving from a supply management perspective, all sorts of pieces. So the Food Lab, I think, is looking at some of those those areas. Members of the Food Lab, so other dairy companies who are members of the Food Lab have reached out to me because, again, being in that network... Uh-huh allows you now to say, hey, we're, you know, I saw you at the last meeting, can we talk about this? So I've actually, on separate offline calls, done sessions with different groups of companies to talk about our experiences with Milk with Dignity, yeah. Migrant Justice, because, again, they're all located in different geographies as well. Sure. And there's been challenges in the, in the Northwest, um, so we've talked about some of those. And what would you say to another company? Uh, can you give us sort of a, a window into those spaces or another company that is considering joining, say, the Milk with Dignity program or a Milk with Dignity type model? Um, would you recommend that to them or and, and why? Well, I, I think, well, for the same reasons that we embraced it, we would recommend it. But again, it's part of Ben & Jerry's value system, which is to recognize the voices at the table mm-hmm. and to recognize who's impacted. So for us, a key a key persuasive element of why we decided to like put our shoulder to the wheel with launching and implementing this program within our supply chain was that it's got the farm workers who have their voices designing this code. Yeah. So you're you're it's so important that it's not this top down corporate approach. It's truly the stakeholders who are impacted by the work are actually saying, Hey, this is how you need to treat me. This is what I need. This is what's fair. And I think when we hear of others who are, are considering other approaches and, and it was a learning curve for us because initially we were corporate, right, in the mm-hmm. space. It was what we thought. We consulted with a, a vast array of experts and we sort of had some version of a standard we were going to roll out. But when we looked at that and then just compared it to the Milk with Dignity standard, yes, I'll, I'd say 80 to 90% of it was very similar. But that extra 10% really reflected that this had come collectively from a group of individuals who are, you know, facing those Vermont winters at 2 o'clock in the morning in a milking parlor. And we wanted to be able to acknowledge and respect the human rights of what that represented, the dignity of what that respected. So when I talk to other companies, whether it's even Milk with Dignity, whether it's other programs, I think my biggest advocacy is always about have the farmer, farm worker, your stakeholder's voice at the table. And that's why we also went with Fair Trade International versus other mm-hmm. certifications because half of their governance is around the farm worker voice, their yeah. producers, 
make the standard and, and, and pass a lot of the governance. Yeah, that's well said. In episode three, we spoke with Jose Oliva, who's an, a longtime labor, labor organizer in, um, in food systems. And one of the things that one of the sentiments that he really leaned into was this of, of worker participation, um, making mm-hmm. sure those voices are are a part of the decision making process. That's a big part of of the Green New Deal. And I think one of the main challenges that it's facing um, is how do you really bring those stakeholders into the decision making progress process? Um, and so but, you know, Jose said there's so many decisions being made about us and for us. And I, I think you know, it's a credit to, to Ben and Jerry's to to have recognized, as you said, you know, we are very corporate. We were designing it. And that's not to say you had a lot of these things were similar, but it's so different when the voices of, of the real, you know, the actual stakeholders are in the room making making those decisions. Yeah, I, I thank you for saying that. And I think we we did, when we talked about a transformation just here within our leadership team, when you start to get it and you're experiencing it and you're engaged in these conversations, you start, I think, from our perspective, there was a little bit of, well, there was a lot of resistance from some of my colleagues about this because we had a nice, tidy program. Mm. Uh, however, when you start to get it, you, you really do start to recognize um, even some things that can seem so challenging and you feel like, oh, if I just tell them to do it this way, we'll just, we'll, we can end this point and we can move on to the next one. Mm. But the whole point is recognizing and respecting, hey, this is a, it's a different cultural way of engaging, but it's also about allowing others to build those muscles, right? And so Absolutely. then you become stronger as a community versus always preempting it by saying, yeah, I got this, I'll take care of it, you don't do it, right? Yeah. So I think that was one of my key pieces of getting really getting that, yeah, this is about partnership. It's not about transactional relationship. It's really about a, a collaborative partnership. Because when you think about a community, it, the, the famous line, it takes a village, and we're all in it. And yeah. if we're going to do anything to keep this planet healthy and have a thriving food system that is going to continue to the future for all constituents, you know, all members of the ecosystem, we, we do have to shift, and that level of discomfort as you kind of give up your comfortable seat at the table to make room for someone else is worth that. Yeah, I know some of the those key leaders in, in migrant justice community, they, you know, they, they came from, from the farms themselves, and they really have nurtured those leaders within their community, and that's a real credit to them. So this is especially timely right now because migrant justice is also is in the middle of asking another company to sign the Milk with Dignity uh, pledge. And so I'm, I'm curious, um, from your perspective, how do you see, uh, how would you encourage a, a company like Hannaford to, to move through this process of, of signing a Milk with Dignity contract? Yeah, it's, it's a, Hannaford is such a, um, it's a different type of company, right? Versus like a brand. Sure. And, Recognizing that Hannaford's parent company has already uh, signed on with Fair Food, which is through uh, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, that whole piece of work that was done uh, around tomatoes and knowing that there are individuals at the parent company who have been in this dialogue, Mm -hmm. I think is one way for Hannaford to start to engage in the conversation because I think, obviously, from a Ben & Jerry's perspective, we think it's, it's a good thing to do. But everybody's journey to get there is different. Sure. And how Milk with Dignity looks for Ben & Jerry's may be different than how it will look for Hannaford's. The core of it, I'm sure, will be very similar, but there may be some other adjustments. And 
just from our own uh, culture here at Ben and Jerry's, we we try to stay open and engage in dialogue, and I think that's that's what I would say to Hannaford's is, you know, open and start listen and have the conversation and 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 start to learn because as you learn and see and start thinking about what your value chain is or what this means for your consumers you'll start to connect the dots and start to realize yeah you know we both we both need to get to this destination so let's let's work together to do it and it it takes it takes time as i said for Ben and Jerry's it took us 2 years of very intense very time consuming hmm. long hours of dialogue where both Migrant Justice and, and that team and Ben and Jerry's, we had to both shift and move a little bit. It was not a simple process. Yeah. And hopefully that will make it a little easier for the Hannaford team when it's, it's yeah. their turn because they can take some of our learnings. But it, it's not, we recognize it's not just something simple at all. But we do believe in the spirit of what it stands for, which is to really, again, embrace the human rights of those people that are in your supply chain. Yeah. Well, we need to close out our time. This has been such a rich conversation. Uh, Cheryl, I feel like asking for an action item now after that, it almost feels like an action item, but there's a lunch agenda tradition where we ask for one simple thing that listeners can do to change the food system for a better. Um, So if you have one simple thing for our listeners to think about, um, we can close out with that. Well, that's ask- that is asking a lot. I think about <laughs> so is. many things all the time. Yeah, yeah. We can, think- it can change next week. That's okay. Yeah, I think it's really, I think it's important to think about where, think about where your food is coming from. Recognize that what you see in a package or wrapped up in cellophane in some plastic bottle, just recognize that there there is life in that food, mm. people and animals. And think about what those conditions are and what that means for the planet. Because it can look very tidy on your grocery shelf, but that's probably a stretch from where it originated from. And what we'd like to imagine and the reality are often two different things. So I just, I guess I would just, I'm doing this more and more all the time, is just thinking more about where the food is coming from and making these conscious decisions of what's on my plate to yeah. try to be more responsible. I love that. There is life in in those in those food products. Yeah. So I appreciate that. So Cheryl, I, I imagine people can follow Ben and Jerry's on Twitter or Instagram or anything like that. Is there any place else we should be following you, your contact information that should we just Yeah. I'm kind of under the radar a lot, so not yet. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. That's fine. We can send people to Ben and Jerry's. They can do what I did, was just like absolutely fall victim to a craving. Um, But I am happy. Yeah, people, if if any of your listeners do want to learn more, there's a ton of our information online. But if anybody ever really did feel like, hey, we really want to talk more, learn more, you can, yeah, you can easily go through the system and, and reach out to me. And I'm happy to engage because sometimes it's just through these, you know, conversations. You can, again, it's a small step, but it can have big big ripple effect yeah so happy to engage and, and speak with anybody or connect with your listeners wonderful wonderful and again i am your host julie kurtz you can follow me at soil soul food on twitter and the same name on instagram um we'll be tying up some of the loose ends of our green new deal series um, in coming weeks and Thera- cheryl thank you again so much for being with us today it was an absolute pleasure um thanks for sharing with our lunch agenda listeners No, thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. 
full-service radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening. <laughs>